Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books and Political Science podcast. My name is Heath Brown. Today I have the uh, pleasure to talk with Thomas Schaller, who is the author of The Stronghold, How Republicans Captured Congress but Surrendered the White House, published by Yale University Press this year. hope that you enjoy this interview. This is the first time in the podcast that uh, I was able to meet one-on-one, face-to-face, with uh, a new book author. Uh, Tom had the, um, was able to come in and we were able to talk in person. Um, some of the sounds a little bit off. Uh, Tom sounds great. I don't sound as great in the, the podcast. He's the one who has all the information. So I hope that you enjoy the chance to hear from him. Welcome back to the podcast. My name is Heath Brown. Today I have, in person, for the very first time in this podcast, Thomas Schaller, who's the author of The Stronghold, How Republicans Captured Congress But Surrendered the White House. Tom, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for having me. Thomas, it's a pleasure to have you. Um, as I just mentioned, this is the first time that I have a podcast guest in person, and so I hope for a great conversation result. Before we get to the book, tell us about yourself. Tell us who you are. Well, first, thanks for having me, and I think this is a great thing, and I probably speak on behalf of the whole discipline to have a, a podcast dedicated to new political science books. It's long overdue, and uh, so I appreciate – and I also appreciate being your first sort of in-person guest. Um, my background, briefly, I'm right now I'm a professor of political science and chair, unfortunately, of the Department of Political Science at UMBC. I say that tongue-in-cheek. Uh, I got my PhD uh, at UNC, Chapel Hill. I've been at UMBC um, for 17 years now. I'm a native of upstate New York and I'm a product of the SUNY system and got my uh, BA at uh, SUNY Oswego. Um, this new book, The Stronghold, is uh, from Yale University Press. Uh, a lot of people may be familiar with my previous book, Whistling Past Dixie, How Democrats Can Win Without the South, uh, which came out uh, right before the 2006 midterms. And uh, I teach political science and American government classes and you know, presidency, media, campaigns, and elections, that sort of stuff. And so that's uh, my basic background. I live yeah. in Washington, D.C., and uh, commute up to Baltimore uh, a few times a week. Right. So professor, chair, book author, uh, uh, in the book, in your acknowledgement section, you actually say a couple of really interesting things that I wanted to start our conversation sure. with. And I'll just quote from the, the acknowledgements. You, you say, um, and I quote, uh, as I proceeded to interview Gillespie, Norquist, and Whitman, I quickly came to two realizations. First, that I'm neither a reporter nor a historian, but a political scientist. And second, that I was proceeding toward an incorrect or at least incomplete argument about the party's rightward shift during the post-Reagan era. I wonder if you would unpack this for us a bit. Before we start talking about your ultimate direction for the book, tell us a little bit about you know, how you approach this, given that this is political science, but uh, maybe a slightly different type of political science than others have read. Well, I owe a special uh, thank you to my editor, Bill Frucht, at Yale University, because the book I originally pitched and that they originally contracted me to write was a book about the 25-year period after Reagan left office and looking at the evolution of the Republican Party through the lens of the two Bush presidencies, Bush 41, the father, and Bush 43, Jr. And as I was interviewing these three people who were going to be sort of this 
threefold narrative to carry me through this period, Christine Todd Whitman and Grover Norquist and Ed Gillespie, who, of course, are at different junctures and come from a different viewpoint ideologically and institutionally at that 25-year window, I started thinking more and more specifically about the Republican Congress, which wasn't my initial focus. I was going to kind of look at the presidential administrations. And what I realized is that I was kind of writing the wrong book. And the epiphany moment, if you will, was Ed Gillespie had said to me um, in the run-up to Bob Dole's presidential campaign when he came up through the House wing of the party and cut his teeth as a young staffer in the House Republican uh, caucus and, of course, was instrumental in helping the Republicans win not just the the Congress but the House specifically in the 1994 revolution. He was asked by Haley Barber, who was then the RNC chair, if he would come and do communications because that was Ed's specialty was PR and communications for the Dole campaign. And he said, well, first I want to know if it comes down to it and the party has to choose between backing Bob Dole's presidential candidate which I support, of course, and maintaining and providing the resources to keep our brand new congressional majorities, which are in their very first Congress at that point, only one less than two years previously. I want to know that we're going to defend our congressional majorities. And once Haley Barber said, of course, Ed, Ed said, all right, I'll leave the, I'll leave the House side and, and move down, oh, not very far, a couple blocks away on the Capitol Hill to the RNC headquarters. So I mentioned this conversation to Norquist, who is an outsider, so to speak. He runs, you know, uh, Americans for Tax Reform and is running his Wednesday groups of all the sort of outside people talking about policy and mission and politics. And he said, oh, that was absolutely the mood of people, both inside and out the party, as far as I can recollect. We wanted Dole to win, of course. But um, his quote that I have in the book is, you know, when the house is on fire, you have to choose between the Van Gogh and the baby. And we chose the baby and the baby were our congressional majorities. And then he said something to me as we were talking about this. He said, you know, you can just govern with the house and i i walked around my house for a couple days going what the heck is he talking about is he just you know grover's a very colorful bombastic guy so he's just jacking with me doesn't really mean that he's saying that with a hint of irony and i realized no that's not really the case um if you're conservative and your orientation is toward government about doing less on the federal level that is not necessarily the state level about restricting limiting repealing in the case of say obamacare uh, and you have a House majority and you can keep your 218 votes. You can, quote unquote, I'm air quoting here, govern if governing means doing less, fewer, shrinking, uh, devolving power to the states and so forth. And then I just stopped and I had a long conversation with my editor and I said, this is the book I should be writing about, the evolution of the modern congressional wing of the party and what it means for Republicans. And then eventually building it into this notion that they went for the Congress, they became a more conservative party as they became a more Congress bound party and they became more more anchored in Congress as they became more conservative, this sort of recursive self-feeding loop, and it's done damage to their presidential wing or their presidential nominees, and that's the book you hold in your hand now. Yeah, it's such an interesting thesis, and it's different than the, the take I think others have had about this era. Those that move sort of the, the, the dial back to 1980 or the, those that move the, the dial to 1994. That's right. You said 1989, really the, the first Bush presidency is where the, the, the transition really happens. What if you can take us to that time period, a time period that sometimes gets overlooked and, and point to a couple of aspects of, of that, those four years that really matter for the, for the, re, the new direction 
that the Republican Party has in Washington? Sure. I think there's a couple things. I mean, just as a starting point, one of the things I say at the conclusion of the book is that for all of the lionization and fetishization in some senses of Ronald Reagan by modern conservatives and Republicans, the naming of National Airport, among other things, it's really Newt Gingrich who's had the greater lasting impact uh, on the right or with Republicans in Washington over the last 25 or 30 years. But what I've discovered in going back and just reading stuff that I sort of knew about in the back of my head but didn't really take some time to put it all together, to me there's a a couple of moments. One is when Dick Armey, who at that point is a relatively junior member, I think Armey got elected first when in '84, four years after, four, uh, six years before John Boehner in 1990, and uh, a full uh, uh, six years after Gingrich first got elected to the House in '78, he wrote this scathing attack, public attack in the New York Times, the Washington, uh, Wall Street Journal, I always forget which one, criticizing the Bush budget deal. Uh, negotiated by Dick Darman uh, in the White House that became the Bush breaking of the No New Taxes Pledge that Bush made at the convention uh, in 1988. For a House member who's not even the ranking minority member, that's Bob Michael back in the day, to go out and stick his neck out and criticize the president so vocally, it seems unbelievable by today's standards where the parties are very polarized against each other but internally cohesive. That, to me, was a defining moment. That's when... Republicans who had no power in Congress at this point, neither the House or the Senate, were willing to take down their own president uh, in service of their conservative agenda and, as I argue later, their ideological institutional agenda, which is to capture the Congress. And so that was a big moment. And then, of course, when Mickey Edwards got beat uh, in a primary in Oklahoma, I talk about that at some length eventually, um, that seat – uh, Istook didn't win the primary, but he uh, it was one of those situations where the Republican Party rules. You had to get 50 percent. I think he came in second to some guy who you have to look in the index. I can't remember. But um, Istook comes in second that primary. Uh, Mickey Edwards, kind of a moderate work, go along, old generation, not quite liberal, but sort of of the Bob Dole model, work with the Democrats on the Hill. Edwards loses because he's slammed for the check-cutting scandal. This is happening in the late uh, 80s, early 90s, right, mm-hmm. uh, under uh, under O'Neill and later Foley. And uh, also he's looked at his two accommodations. He gets tacked in as a primary, a forerunner of what we see today, the Tea Party attack. Loses the primary. Istok finishes second. He wins the runoff. Or excuse me. Um, uh, yeah, Istok wins the runoff, and he becomes uh, a replacement candidate. They don't lose that seat, which is also a foreshadowing that these fights are really not between Democrats and Republicans. They're among Republicans in the primary. And I think that kind of attack on an institutional insider, a guy in the leadership, Mickey Edwards, within the House caucus, and then, of course, the interbranch attack between uh, Dick Armey and his sort of band of renegade Republicans on their own sitting uh, president of the United States, uh, to me, was like, I mean, there's plenty of other moments in there, but those are two that I focus on that says, hey, something was going on here. Yeah, and, and if there's a location for these battles... It's Washington, but it's Washington, but it's also Texas, and so the, the individuals of Texas, one of them that you mentioned, and a neighbor that you also allude to, become very important during this time period. Dick Armey is one. Tom DeLay, Tom DeLay becomes sure. another. As someone who studies interest groups, I was very interested in their writing about DeLay's involvement with the scandals of the 2000s. I wonder if you could take us to that time period. This is a time period where, in some ways, the strategy. Uh, that you describe in the book has worked. Um, it's become institutionalized in a little way, in certain ways. So how does that then have an impact on sort of the, the machinations of Washington policymaking, the work of lobbyists, the work of special interest groups? I wonder if you can talk a little bit about that. Well, as I mentioned in the book, you know, the Republicans, and both parties do this, not just the Republicans, but the Republicans have an asymmetrical sort of interest and advantage in running against Washington by, while they're running for and to control Washington. And, of course, they do that. And they have some, you know, help 
help from Clinton and the failed health care reform that his wife, uh, First Lady Hillary Clinton, ran. So they come into Washington in 1994, and they're complaining about big government and fiscal insolvency. And what happens? Well, within four years, the total pork barrel spending doubles under the new Republican Congress. And within four more years, it doubles again. So pork barrel spending quadruples within eight years of the Republicans taking over Congress in 1994 by the early Bush administration. But if I can drop back even before we get to Lay, I'm not trying to punt on that. We yeah. can come back to him. To me, another moment where this, this goes in the other direction, we just talked about Army attack, attacking Bush. Here comes Bush Jr. in 1999 and Karl Rove, who's a great student of realignment theory and was fascinated by the 1896 election uh, between McKinley and William Jennings Bryan of 1896, took a class in realignment theory, as I actually did when I got my master's at Florida State from Bill Claggett, a great political scientist and one of the leading experts on this. He sort of modeled the Bush campaign for the nomination after the 1896. He brought people to Austin, right? He didn't want to bring Bush to Washington. But at some point, you kind of have to end up in Washington. So what happens in 1999 when then-Governor George W. Bush comes to Washington? He's on Capitol Hill, and he, because they're from the same delegation to come to your Texas point, he kind of has to take a picture with Tom DeLay, who this is before all the scandals that happened with the golf junkets and all that that are going to happen in the next few years in the early 2000s when Bush is president. But Tom DeLay is already the hammer. He's already a toxic figure and a rising figure uh, in that caucus on the House. So there's a national media event, and they got a picture of Tom DeLay. And, of course, the DNC issues this press release going, see, George Bush is just Tom DeLay from you know the State House coming wanting to run the White House. And Bush's people, say, and Bush is quoted as saying in the book, and I might butcher it a little bit, he says, that dog won't hunt, and he's trying to use this sort of southern twang, says, that dog won't hunt, we're running for the executive. And so you have the Republican nominee and Karl Rove understanding full well that in order to win the White House, they have to somewhat keep their own delegation and their own House majorities at a careful arm's length, but because being closely, too closely associated with their own Republican majorities on Capitol Hill could potentially be toxic for Bush's own chances to win the White House. Right. And so part of the thesis of this is you, you in winning the House and winning control of the House, um, the aspirations to win the presidency in the White House are, are foregone. This seems to work particularly well during the Obama years. But let's look ahead a little bit. We're recording this on State of the Union Day. Sure. The president is going to be speaking now to more Republicans than he's ever spoken to before. That's right. If numbers are kind of right. Um, what about this strategy? Is this is this still the strategy uh, for the party, or has the strategy started to change at all with a 2016 uh, election looming? Well, as John McCain and Mitch McConnell have said very clearly uh, the week that the new Congress got installed, the 114th Congress, uh, they're trying not to do any damage to the presidential candidate hopes of whoever, whoever, whomever the uh, Republicans nominate in 2016. These are direct quotes given in the Washington Post and Politico and other uh, national media sources. So they're making no bones about the fact that, A, they're aware of the fact that the Republican majorities on Capitol Hill, both chambers, but particularly that House majority, I think, creates problems for the party's brand and image and something I talk about at length in the book and especially in the, in the last concluding chapter. I mean, and part of the reason is because what works in your home congressional Congressional district, which is heavily gerrymandered, and you really have to win the primaries we talked about and appeal to very conservative voters. And you say something like, and obviously a great example is Todd Aking saying forcible rape. You say forcible rape at some town hall or some local event or on the local media and talk radio in your home district of Missouri, and nobody calls in. There's not a fuss. You know, there's nothing necessarily even in the paper. Paul Ryan 
voted for the forcible rape amendment in the House. People didn't probably even know about that until Todd Akin blurts it out. And now every member who voted for that amendment, which failed, I believe, on the House floor, is suddenly being questioned about it, including their vice presidential candidate, Paul Ryan, who voted for it, and including their presidential candidate, Mitt Romney, who didn't. And they're saying, is this the view of your party? What do you think about Todd Akin? And that puts national candidates in an uncomfortable position because they say Todd Akin's an idiot. Now, now you've got a problem with the Missouri voters and the Republican base and pro-life voters. And if you say, oh, yeah, I think there's nothing wrong with that, then you've got a problem with the broader electorate and the media is like, oh, boy, you need to put this story to bed. And so to me, that's a perfect example of how what works for the congressional wing of the party and its internal politics and primary politics to get nominated and renominated for office uh, may not work for and may often work against the best uh, interest of the presidential wing, so to speak, or presidential nominee, whoever it is that cycle. Yeah. Before we wrap up, I just want you to touch a little bit on the Tea Party. You kind of allude to this a little bit. It's a subject of interest to, to me. Um, where does the Tea Party fit into this this narrative that you're telling? Um, it, in some ways, it would seem to be the, the perfect illustration, yet it's wavering. It's sort of fading in certain ways. Fit that into the story and thesis that you have in the book. Yeah, I open up with a sort of this notion that the Republican Party after the 2012 election was licking its wounds, and they did this internal diagnostic called the Governing Opportunity Project. They interviewed like 1,100 people, and they got to all their advice together. And they had a variety of conclusions, some of which were about strategic and tactical decisions and fund raising, but mostly it was about message and branding and the image of the party. And they end up concluding that we, you know, the party needs to move toward governors and and uh, and state elites for input and away from its federal wing. This is the exact words in the conclusion of the of the governing opportunity project. And I think that's exactly right. But what's interesting about that is I say after that which was came out in like March of 2013 they took 3 or 4 months the republican party essentially had a twofold choice they could de- try to execute a full-blown recovery to reestablish the party, reach out to, say, Latinos and other parts of the emergent electorate, unmarried women and other non-white voters, or they could kind of retrench and just try to squeeze as many votes and seats and electoral votes out of their declining older white male base. And if you look at two episodes or two incidents, one is the rise of the Tea Party in 2010, and the other is this still with us as of today's State of the Union problem or political problem of solving the immigration question. In both cases, they seem to be veering toward retrenchment and not kind of doing a full-blown recovery. And so this is a part of the problem. When most of your leadership and most of your elites and most of the message and ideas and policy are driven by your House, particularly wing and your Congress wing more broadly, it's going to be very difficult in a path-dependent way. They've made a series of rational choices that have brought them to majorities in the House and the Senate, mostly through obstruction and being the party of no, which makes perfect sense. They didn't pay any price since 2010 for stopping and thwarting and repealing Obamacare or voting for that 54 times. They won the Senate, right? So you can win congressional elections doing that, but maybe you can't win presidential elections. And the reason is because it doesn't look like you have an affirmative agenda, a policy-oriented agenda, instead of a political and procedural fighting agenda. And so I think that's the piece that's missing, and the party's going to have to figure out how to do that. And it's really ultimately falls to the Republican nominee and maybe vice presidential nominee to figure that out and be the corrective to the party. And we'll see who they nominate and whether that person or persons is able to do that. Yeah, so just a really interesting book, one that I learned a lot from and enjoyable to read. I wanted just to talk as we wrap up here a little bit about the rollout of the book. This is a book published by Yale University Press. Um, talk a little bit about some of your strategies as a political scientist to um, engage the public on this on this book. Um, teach us a little about what, what has worked for you. I think lots of political scientists struggle with this very point sure. at which they have worked as hard as they possibly can for two years, three years, four years, maybe even longer. Um, 
tell us a little bit about how you approach the release of a book. You've you've been successful in the past, and tell us about what you what you do. Well, I've published three books now, and they've been three very different publishers. My first book about black state legislators, co-author with uh, my colleague at UMBC, Tyson King Meadows, was published by SUNY Press, a traditional academic press. Then I went and sold a book to Simon and Schuster, and had a sort of mainstream global uh, name, Simon and Schuster, in, in the mainstream uh, market. This book is somewhere in between. Yale is University Press, but they have a sort of public intellectual side of their press that publishes, you know, people like Jacob Hacker and apparently people like me, mm-hmm. uh, which is somewhere in the middle. It's almost like Dorothy or uh, Goldilocks and getting mm-hmm. the porridge kind of right. And what I have found is that, first of all, advice to other political scientists or other academics is, in the end, you are going to be your best publicist. You have to call in favors with people that have interviewed you in the past and television shows and radio shows that you've done. Your university can give you help. I'm getting publicity help from UMBC, from their Office of Institutional Advancement and PR Department. I get publicity help from Yale, of course. I get publicity help. I'm, I've hired a bit of a, an outside publisher to help me a little bit, particularly with center-right media, which because my politics tend more liberal, and I hired mm-hmm. a more conservative publicity firm to help me reach out to the other side ideologically, since this book is about the Republicans. The last one was about the Demo- Democrats. But in the end, I even have to coordinate among the three of them, so we figure out who's doing what and what's going to be radio, what's going to be a TV piece, uh, who can reach out to bloggers and online presence. And in the end, you really just have to work yourself. I wrote three pieces the week came out, my regular Baltimore Sun column. I wrote a piece for Talking Points Memo. I wrote a piece for um, – I'm forgetting the third one. Uh, but you know, I write a lot of pieces simultaneously with the launch of the book. It gives somebody something to hold on to, something to reference, a way to mention your book. So every opportunity to do a Q&A – I did a Q&A with Salon. I used to do a lot of blogging and writing for them. That's coming out in a day. So I say yes to everything, and you really just have to work very hard at it, say a lot uh, – say yes a lot, and then follow through. And so the last two weeks, I haven't gotten a lot of sleep, Heath, but uh, that's the nature of the business, I think, if you want to promote yourself because in the end, nobody's going to be your best publicist other than yourself. Right. And and also chair and also professor as we started our conversation. Yeah, I need a big nap. Right. Tom's, <laughs> Tom's book is The Stronghold, How Republicans Captured Congress but Surrendered the White House, published 2015, Yale University Press. Tom, thank you very much for your time today. Thanks for inviting me. My great pleasure.